17, examining a wonderful text that gives us much, much insight into the whole issue of sin. And I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Slippery Slope of Sin. Sin is an enemy that we all must battle with on a daily basis. Some sins we see, most of them we don't. But we rejoice that we have an ally in this battle, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God. And as Jude 24 tells us, that because of Him, someday we can stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. And we do rejoice in that. But sin is a very, very profound heartbreak for all of us, isn't it? We all struggle with it. Fathers and mothers struggle with it with their children. Husbands and wives with one another. Pastors struggle with it. Not only in themselves, but in their church. It's a very difficult thing to observe the ravages of sin in the lives that we love. In some cases, when we look at a life, we can easily spot the sin. It's blatant. It's easily recognized. Often it's even acknowledged by the one that is struggling with it. They will admit the ongoing battle, but many times it's well camouflaged, especially in Christian circles. Well camouflaged with churchianity and Christianese and all of the incredibly sophisticated strategies of defensiveness. Years of rationalization and blame shifting. Well, my prayer is that today the Holy Spirit will use His Word to tenderly expose any malignant cell of sin that He chooses to expose in our lives this morning that we might be able to eviscerate it from our lives and confess it and ask for forgiveness and begin to design our lives to guard against uh, that particular wickedness from ever coming back again. As James instructs the scattered and persecuted saints in this text, he is now going to tell them much about sin. But before this, I will remind you that he's talked about the trials and the tribulations that people go through, that they were going through, and how to respond to those trials. The reason why God brings them to help us be conformed into his image and Now he moves from the external trials and focuses much more on the internal temptations, the hidden processes of our hearts, the inner workings of our lusts, those consuming desires and passions that entice us to sin, a process that does not find its source in God, as we will see, but in our unredeemed humanness, in our flesh, as Galatians 5.17 says, that our flesh, we, we lust against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that we do not do the things that we wish. And so, in this text, dear friends, we are going to go into a tour of the human heart. A fascinating fortress, I like to call it, one that is often concealed behind our twinkling eyes and our spiritual smiles. Sometimes it's like a factory that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 
manufacturing every conceivable idol. Sometimes it's like a law firm and even a kangaroo court that justifies and rationalizes all the sins that we commit. A system complete with all the spin doctors that we need to explain our sin away and blame shift it on our husbands or our wives or someone else. Sometimes it's like an art museum that proudly displays our most titillating fantasies in our imagination. Always instantly and readily accessible for our reference. And sometimes our heart is even like an armory that keeps us well supplied with all of the weaponry necessary to defend against divine conviction. Keeping us always at war against the truth. And with all of this in this fortress in our hearts, if you listen real carefully down in the basement underneath all of this, you will hear something that's locked away in a room that is almost soundproof. And when you listen closely, you will hear the cries of our conscience, warning against all of the evils up above, pleading for obedience to the truth. So with that in mind, let's look at this wonderful text here that James gives us, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Friends, inherent in this text is a very clear progression of sin. I like to see it in four stages. Let me give them to you and comment on them. Four stages in sin. First, the temptation. Secondly, the lust. Thirdly, the sinful act. And then fourthly, the death. Temptation, lust, sinful act, and death. Easy to remember. T-L-S-D. Perhaps the imagery of a slippery slope will help us as we begin to wrap our minds around this most important concept. I've spent a number of years of my life out west in the mountains, enjoying them in many different ways. And one time I remember in particular in British Columbia going on a rather rather long hike for a couple of weeks with some friends. And they pointed to an area on this one mountain where there was a large shale slide. And those of you that have been in the mountains out west understand shale slides. It's a place where the, 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 the rock is, is kind of slippery. It's so much of it. And it, if you step on it, if you're not careful, you'll begin to slip and to slide and you'll pick up momentum. Those of you that are from Montana, you know well about shale slides. And this particular shale slide was an interesting one because my friends told me that a few years before that, a young man had fallen off of this particular place and um, fell to his death. And I asked about the story and they told me the story and 
It was sad because the young man was warned, along with some others, don't go near that shale slide. Even though it is a shortcut around this one area, don't go near that because it is very dangerous. Well, evidently, like most young men, he felt that he was invulnerable, invincible, and he decided to take the shortcut to be daring. And unfortunately, he began to slip. And rather than stopping, when he began to slip, they said that he kind of kept running and he he thought that he could kind of get beyond the area. But he didn't. He gained momentum and he slipped and fell about 200 feet to his death. He was tempted by the shortcut and the thrill of danger. And with the lust in his heart, this inner desire to be cool with the rest of his friends and the feelings of being invincible, he ignored wise counsel. And then he acted on his foolishness and deliberately got too close to the edge until the momentum of his foolish act took him over and threw him to his death. With that in mind, let's notice what the Holy Spirit of God tells us about this slippery slope of sin. He begins by talking about this first stage, the stage of temptation, beginning in verse one. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Temptation here is in this section is obviously a solicitation to do evil, to do something wicked. But it is clear from this text that this allurement is not from God. And first we notice in this text a very strong admonition to never blame God for the temptation and for the sin. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to own your own sin? It is really tough. It is amazing the mental gymnastics we will go through to somehow rationalize and justify and vindicate ourselves. And one of the most common devices that we tend to use is to blame shift. It's always somebody else's fault. We're just the unwitting victim here. And it began in the garden, did it not? It's not my fault, God. It was the serpent. Uh, well, it's not my fault. It's my husband or my wife or whatever. And sometimes people will say even to this day, well, you know what? It was a bad thing that I did, but I couldn't help it. It's that old devil. He made me do it. And in some cases, people will even go so far as to say, you know, it's not fair because God set me up for that. He tempted me and he is the one that caused me to do this. Yes, I participated, but after all, the Bible says in Matthew 6 that we're supposed to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, that text right there proves it. You ever heard that before? Oh, you need to be in my counseling office from time to time. You will hear all kinds of interesting takes on Scripture. But notice in verse 14, it says that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, I'll talk more about that in a moment. But with respect to Matthew 6, when we are to pray, you know, Father, lead us not into temptation in that pattern for prayer that our Lord gave the disciples. Really, what we are praying there is, Father, I acknowledge my weakness to avoid sin. 
I know that temptation doesn't come from you, but I admit my proclivity to to acquiesce to temptation, to be carried away and enticed by my own lust. And so, Father, I'm, I'm praying that you will lead me away from any scenario in which my spiritual immaturity and my frailty of faith might cause me to once again jump headlong into sin and bring dishonor to you and discipline to me. Perhaps I need to digress here for a moment. Some have asked even this week. If God is sovereign over all things, then and we also know that even in this text that he is not the one that can be tempted and and all. Well, where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? If God is sovereign and decrees all things, then He must have decreed evil and sin. I wonder, did did sin and did evil just kind of slip up on God and kind of catch Him unaware? Well, if it didn't, then somehow He had to be the original cause of evil, didn't He? After all, in Scripture we read that He hardens hearts, He sends evil spirits, He blinds minds and sends strong delusions. He causes evil people to commit evil acts. Did that with Christ, right? He ordains evil evil in the hearts of kings to accomplish His eternal purposes. He even delivers sinning saints over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5? What say ye? Sounds like God's in a real jam here, doesn't it? And yet we know that God is holy. Psalm 5, verse 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Habakkuk 1.13 says that you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And all through Scripture we read that He is utterly separated from sin, and yet He's also sovereign. Well, then how did evil get here? How did sin get here? How do you explain that? We got sovereignty plus evil equals God's in a jam. Well, dear friends, God is not in a jam. If I can put it to you as simply as possible, and certainly this would require much more explanation, but let me give it to you for a moment here because I know that it comes up even in this text. Listen to me carefully. It is not God that decreed evil, but rather he decreed evil to exist. He allowed it to exist. He created the propensity to do evil in creatures with moral agency and permitted it to exist when his creatures voluntarily exercised their wills to sin. So God did not decree that sin be committed. He decreed to allow it for his eternal purposes. Francis Turretin, that great, great theologian, Puritan theologian back in the 1600s addresses this this topic because some people would say, well, okay, if he just decreed that it would be allowed to exist, why did he even do that? Turretin writes, and I quote, as to its beginning, referring to evil and sin, he freely permits it. As to its progress, he wisely directs it. As to its end, he powerfully terminates and brings it to an end. For if he had not permitted evil, 
His punitive justice would not have appeared, nor his pardoning mercy, nor the wisdom by which he turns evil into good, nor that wonderful love manifested in sending his son into the world for the salvation of the church. End quote. So it is not that God decreed evil, but rather he decreed that evil could exist. Indeed, God does work all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And so therefore, certainly and deliberately, he decreed that sin and evil would temporarily exist to demonstrate his wrath and his power and to display his glorious mercy and grace, according to Romans 9.19. We even know, don't we, that, that uh, God uses sinful men to accomplish His purposes. He even uses Satan as an instrument of testing and even judgment. He did that with Job, remember? So many examples. He used uh, Satan even as an act of, uh, of chastening with David. Remember when he caused, uh, in 1 Corinthians 21, he caused uh, Satan to, to stand up uh, against Israel and moved David to number Israel and so on. So God is not the source of evil and sin. He allowed it to exist, but nor is he one that can be tempted by evil, as we see here in this text. He is utterly immune to the power of wickedness. His character is invulnerable, invincible against all assaults of temptation and sin. Remember when he met with Satan in the wilderness. Indeed, God is utterly holy. Our Lord Jesus even described himself in Hebrews 7.26 as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. So, back to James 1. God is not the source of temptation. Well, what is? Well, certainly we know Satan is, but also we see in this text that the source is our lust. And that's the second aspect of the slippery slope of sin. Each one, verse 14, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, lust is a strong desire in the original language that is focused on an object. And it could be something that's focused on either a good or a bad object. But certainly in this context, it is something that is focused on something wicked. It's an evil inclination. If I can put it this way, it is a frenzied craving. It is a ravenous appetite. It is a passionate infatuation to have something that you foolishly think you've got to have. And the satanic system of the world in which we live makes it simply irresistible. We hear that song from time to time. Simply irresistible. Satan sees to that. So irresistible that we at times will sacrifice anything to get what it is that we think we've got to have. And my, what a menu the world offers. And my, what a list of foolish demands that are in our hearts of flesh, of lust. But remember, dear friends, that the fault lies not in the temptation on the outside, but on the fool in the inside. You don't blame the seduction. You blame the sucker. You don't blame the lure. You blame the lust. 
Friends, it's not the bait, it's the buffoon. Jesus said in Matthew 15, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Now very practically, what are some of those frenzied cravings that we have? Let me give you just a bit of a menu here. Certainly, some are things like money and material things. We see people frantic to get that. For others, it might be a sexual appetite. For others, it might be some substance, alcohol, drugs, whatever, to deaden pain and to give a high. For some people, it might be food or entertainment or tobacco. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can become those objects that we begin to crave. But dear friends, I would submit to you that very often the things that we really need to examine are those things that are far more subtle. Far more insidious. Far more dangerous. For example, some have a frenzied craving to be lazy, to be undisciplined. And they will habitually pursue every opportunity to distract themselves from what they know they should do. Some have a frenzied craving, have a lust to just disappear. I just don't want to even be seen. Just leave me alone. Let me check out of life. I'm overwhelmed with responsibility. I can't handle it. Don't require anything of me because I'm just too fragile. And so I will pursue every opportunity to somehow disappear. For others, it's a passion to be noticed. And they'll do whatever it takes. Always wondering where the spotlight is, trying to run underneath it and do one of these. And they will destroy anyone that gets in their way. Always criticizing others. Always trying to be noticed. For others, they want to be approved. They want approval. And I'll do whatever it takes to get it. I want your involvement. They're people that I call high-maintenance people. They require constant attention. They're not happy unless there's a crisis. And if there's not one, they'll make one. Please help me. Please talk to me. Please watch me. Please care for me. See how subtle it can be? Oh, dear friends, lust is such a dangerous thing. And for others, it can be the frenzied craving to be in control. Always giving other people orders. And you're never to be questioned. Only obeyed. Always pushing an agenda like a spoiled child. Convinced that the world revolves around me. And I will do whatever it takes to get people to orbit around my gravitational that basically says, I've got to be in control. And on and on it goes. And the litmus test of this, dear friends, will be a life that is filled with conflict and anger and depression and fear and guilt and despair and all of those things. A trail of tears of broken relationships as you hop from one person to the next and so on. James chapter 4 verse 1 through verse 3 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust 
and do not have. So you commit murder and you are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Paul struggled with the same thing in Romans 7, beginning in verse 18. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members, my body, my flesh, my lusts. So James goes on here, gives even further Claire's notion that it is our lust, not the temptation that is the culprit. Notice what he says in verse 14. At the end, he says that we are carried away and enticed by our own lust. I love reading James, especially in the original language, because you will see that he is a great outdoorsman. You guys, if you're like me and you love the outdoors, you need to really get to know James because he was a real outdoorsman. And so much of the, of the metaphorical imagery and illustrations that he uses are illustrations that came from an outdoorsman, a hunter and a fisherman and a mountain man and so on. And he uses that here in this concept of being carried away and enticed by our own lust. By the way, this is very important, friends, that you understand the, the idea of being carried away and being enticed. If you're going to understand how sin operates in your life, if you're going to understand the dangers of the slippery slope, the concept of carried away means to drag away or to draw away. Literally, it means to lure. It's a hunting and trapping term that was used to describe bait that would entice an unsuspecting animal into a trap by appealing to its inner desire. It gets its attention to draw him out of his original repose, whatever it might be. And then the word enticed is very similar, but a little different. It was more of a fishing term. And it's used in the same way as carried away, but with more of the idea of getting the, the, the prey, the animal, the victim, to take a specific bait, to grab a hold of something specific, to throw caution to the wind and just go for it. Calvin says it well with respect to this. He says there's two effects of lust. It ensnares us by its allurements and then it draws us away each of which is sufficient to render us guilty, end quote. Dear friends, here is the power of lust that I want you to understand. It is so powerful. The appetite is so insatiable that unless we keep it in check, it will instantly be attracted to that which is simply irresistible. And when it does, when it grabs the bait, that act of grabbing the bait 
is the third stage in sin in that slippery slope, and that is the act of sin. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And what is sin? Well, 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is lawlessness. It is the transgression of God's law. And that text says that anyone who practices sin is also practicing lawlessness. Dear friends, sin is rebellion against God's law, against His holiness. And we know that the result of sin, and we need to be reminded of this, the result of sin is just enormous. Sickness and death and discord and murder and war and depression and fear and, and famine and earthquakes and thorns and thistles and even the IRS. Everything that is bad in life is the result of sin. Because of sin, man has been separated from God spiritually. We rejoice that that separation can be mended through Christ. But because of sin, man is also not only separated from God, but separated from nature because of the curse. Now we have to work by the sweat of our brow and we have to toil. We're even separated from man, from one another because of sin. As we look at the curse on Adam and Eve, we see that there's going to be conflict in every relationship. There is, there's even conflict in the heavenlies amongst the holy angels and the demons. Friends, it's all because of sin. Never underestimate the power of sin. Sin rules every heart. We're born into it, the Bible says. No one escapes it. And the wages of sin is what? Is death. Sin attacks everyone at birth. And over the years, it, it degrades and it destroys and it disfigures until finally it plunges one into an eternal hell. Apart from the saving grace of Christ. Friends, every tear is caused by sin. Joshua 7.13, it's called the accursed thing. It's described in the Word of God as the venom of snakes. It's described even as the stench of death. Guthrie says it well, and I quote, Who is the hoary sexton that digs man a grave? Who is the painted temptress that steals his virtue? Who is the murderess that destroys his life? Who is the sorceress that first deceives and damns his soul? It is sin. Who with icy breath blights the fair blossoms of youth? Who breaks the hearts of a parent? Who brings old men's gray hairs with sorrow to the grave? It is sin. Who, by a more hideous metamorphosis than Ovid even fancied, changes gentle children into vipers, tender mothers into monsters, and their fathers into worse than Herod's, the murderers of their own innocence? It is sin. Who casts the apple of discord on household hearts? Who lights the torch of war and bears it blazing over trembling lands? Who, by division in the church, rends Christ's seamless robe? It is sin. Who is the Delilah that sings the Nazarite asleep and delivers up the strength of God into the hands of the uncircumcised? Who, with winning smiles on her face and honeyed flattery on her tongue, stands in the door to offer the sacred rites of hospitality and when suspicion sleeps treacherously, pierces our temples with nails? 
What fair siren is this who seated on a rock by a deadly pool smiles to deceive, sings to lure, kisses to betray, and flings her arms around our neck to leap with us into perdition. It is sin. Who turns the soft and gentlest heart to stone? Who hurls reason from her lofty throne and impels sinners mad as gathering swine down a precipice into a lake of fire? It is sin. End quote. Dear friends, how heartbreaking to see sinners run blindly and with great joy headlong into sin and ultimately into the wrath of a holy God. James uses such a powerful metaphor here in this text. Notice he says, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's the metaphorical imagery here of a mother giving birth. Think of it this way. When lust lies with temptation, a conception occurs and eventually sin is born. And whenever there is a birth, there must be labor pains, right? You know, sin is hard work. You realize that? Psalm 7:14, speaking of sinners, it says that they travail with wickedness. And the word in the Hebrew for travail means birth pains. They travail with wickedness. Proverbs 4:16, speaking again of sin and those that commit it, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. Remember the story of Lot? The homosexuals that came after the men that went in, went in and God blinded them because of their hideous lusts. And even after they were blinded, the text says that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Inconceivable what sin can do. Friends, there is labor in sin. But also, as we look at this imagery, we see that sin doesn't just happen as a discrete scenario, as an isolated act without any history. A woman just doesn't come along and, whoops, I had a baby. No, there was a history there. You see, friends, it's for this reason that you must understand we never just fall into sin. It never just kind of happens. But rather, what happens is we pander our lusts and we savor them in the secret recesses of our imagination and we endlessly rehearse the pleasures that will be ours when we eventually commit that act. And then we vigorously rationalize and justify the appropriateness and the necessity of our plan. And if need be, we will even go to others to somehow garner support Give them some ingenious spin to get them to come along with us. And then, after all that, after all of that, we will act upon our lust so that we can satisfy some selfish demand. And you know what the amazing thing is? Sometimes that whole process can take about a split second. That's how wicked we are. And because it becomes so habitual so many times, we become adept in justifying our sin and after a while we don't even know we've sinned. After all, that's just who I am. Ha, ha, ha. 
At least we don't know it until we begin to experience the consequences of it. You ask, Pastor, how can I deal with sin? Well, certainly you need to recognize that there, there is forgiveness in Christ. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news. The wages of sin is death, but it doesn't have to be because the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. But also you have to recognize, dear friends, that you have the power to say no. You can exercise your capacity to choose to not get near the edge of the mountain. Don't even get near. Isn't it amazing how close we like to get to sin? Rather than to see how far we can get away from it. We need to be so saturated with God and His Word that we recognize the danger and we know how to respond to it. Jesus said we need to deal with it in such a dramatic way. Sometimes it's like you need to even pluck out your eye or cut off your arm. Not speaking literally, but the idea is that that's how important it is to avoid being captured by the bait stick of sin. Well, if you don't, it will lead finally to death. Verse 15, the end of the verse, it says, And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Again, dear friends, the wages of sin is death. Eternal spiritual death for the unsaved and sometimes even an untimely temporal death for believers. 1 Corinthians 11. But notice the precious promise that is used in contrast to the death. It doesn't have to be this way. Notice what he says over in verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting or shadow. We'll look at that more next week. But friends, the point is this. God is not the, the one that offers the temptation. He's the one that offers every good and perfect gift. See, He's the Father of lights, which was a Jewish title for, for God, the one who is the Creator, the one who was the great giver of light, a light that will never grow dim. And how I plead with you, dear friends, as His servant, if you are here without Christ today, you are gaining momentum as you slide wildly down the slippery slope of sin to an eternal death. And if you're here today as a believer, I warn you to beware of the slippery slope of sin in your life as well. Run from its precipice. Starve your lusts. Mortify your flesh. Don't give it an opportunity to be even entertained. And if you're in it, as we all are at different levels, you need to confess it and repent. Turn and walk in a different direction. I want to close this morning with an illustration that I came across several years ago that I thought about in my study this week that I wanted to share because as I went through this text, I remembered this and thought, my, what a graphic illustration of the slippery slope of sin. It was during the Civil War and a very young woman, the age of 22, once beautiful, once charming, came to the commercial hospital in Cincinnati, a broken-hearted outcast of society. She had become a prostitute and she was dying. She came to the hospital in Cincinnati in the very dead of winter. 
And after she died, they found in her personal effects a poem that she had written entitled Beautiful Snow. It was a poem that she wrote to describe her life. And this poem was so remarkable that it was taken to the editor of the National Union, the paper there, and it was printed the very next day, even before she was buried. In fact, the American poet Thomas Buchanan read the poem and was so impressed with, the, with just the pathos of the poem, and the richness of it, and the, and the sadness of it, and the power of it, that he went and followed the girl's body to her grave. Friends, here's a powerful example of the slippery slope of sin written by one who slid all the way down. Oh, the snow, she writes, the beautiful snow, filling the sky and the earth below, over the housetops, over the street, over the heads of the people you meet, dancing, flirting, skimming along, beautiful snow, it can do no wrong. Flying to kiss a fair lady's cheek, clinging to lips and frolics and freak. Beautiful snow from the heavens above, pure as an angel and gentle as love. Once I was pure as the snow, but I fell. Fell like the snowflakes from heaven to hell. Fell to be trampled as filth in the street. Fell to be scoffed, to be spat on and beat. Pleading and cursing and dreading to die, selling my soul to whoever would buy. Dealing in shame for a morsel of bread, hating the living and fearing the dead. Merciful God, have I fallen so low, and yet I was once as the beautiful snow. Once I was fair as the beautiful snow, with an eye like its crystal and heart like its glow. Once I was loved for my innocent grace, flattered and sought for the charms of my face. Father, mother, sister and all. God and myself, I have lost by my fall. The veriest wretch that goes shivering by will make a wide scoop lest I wander too nigh. For all that is on or above me, I know there is nothing as pure as the beautiful snow. How strange it should be that this beautiful snow should fall on a sinner with nowhere to go. How strange it should be when night comes again. If the snow in the ice struck my desperate brain, fainting, freezing, dying alone, too wicked for prayer, too weak for a moan, to be heard in the streets of the crazy town, gone mad in the joy of the snow coming down, to lie and to die in my terrible woe with a bed and a shroud of the beautiful snow. Sometime later, someone responded, and interjected the good news of the gospel because, friends, it doesn't have to be left this way. Someone wrote, and I quote, Helpless and frail is the trampled snow. Sinner, despair not. Christ stoop with low to rescue the soul that is lost in its sin and raise it to life and enjoyment again. Groaning, bleeding, dying for thee, the crucified hung made a curse on the tree. His accents of mercy fall soft on thine ear. Is there mercy for me? Will he heed my prayer? O oh God, in the stream that for sinners doth flow, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Dear friends, we all walk on the edge of an abyss. And only you know where you are on that slippery slope. Some of you may be considering temptation. Some of you pandering lust in your heart. 
Some of you are utterly riveted on some sweet poison that will ultimately destroy you. Whatever it is, dear friends, I warn you, examine your heart and flee from it, lest it take you over and destroy you. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.